0: thanks again. A couple qualifications here. First of all, I know that um, uh, when I come to something like this and um, people come to it, and I'm supposed to be coming with my wife, I know that the truth is most people actually came to um, see my wife and not me. And I know that sounds like a, you know, cute little self-deprecating whatever, but it's actually true. So... (laughs) So there's that. So I'm very sorry that uh, Becca can't be here. We were, it was yesterday, we were literally driving uh, to the airport and I like pull over and let Becca out to throw up on the side of the road. And it was like, and it was funny because she's not a, she is not a puker other than when she's uh, morning sick. So I had this kind of strange, nostalgic, like this kind of reminds me of when we were having kids, but um, she didn't see it that way. Um <laughs> it was great. This is probably going to end up being like a what-have-you episode, I'm sure. Because she she's on the side throwing up, and then she gets back in the car, and she's still like, oh, I think I'm going to throw up. And then she's like, what was I standing in? Because I think she got out in like some poison ivy. And she's got her, she's freaking out because her legs are in a full like poison ivy reaction, but she's also trying to throw up. It was really cute. <laughs> Anyhow, so... I'm sorry she can't be here. We tried to see if she could make it out this morning, but she was still not well uh, this morning. So anyhow, so it's just me. So I, I had actually, um, I was thinking of this talk in terms of uh, more devotional exhortation to the uh, men. So uh, I think it still works uh, for the ladies as well. Or if it's not for you, then you can be like your husband's accountability partner on this. So anyhow, let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, I do thank you again for uh, your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for uh, the reality and power of the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray uh, for that now that we would understand uh, what it looks like to follow after you, to be uh, men and women who truly uh, desire to pursue you in every way. Praise pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, there's a quote from the, uh, the letters of Emily Dickinson, the heart wants what the heart wants heart wants what the heart wants. And this quote was recycled by Woody Allen to uh, justify his affair uh, with the adopted daughter of Mia Farrow, whom, with whom he'd already had a 10-year thing. I say thing because I'm not sure how you define it. Uh, but he's um, sleeping with the daughter of the lady that he's also living with. And, um, and then he's trying to explain how it is that he got into the situation. And he borrows that quote from Emily Dickinson. Well, the heart wants what the heart wants right? You, what, what the heart wants, what are you going to do? Because, because you're kind of trapped. Um, there's what your heart desires, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, someone thinks that you're perverted because while you were in the middle of a 10-year relationship with one woman, you began having a secret affair with her adopted teenage daughter. Well, heart wants what the heart wants, doesn't it? So, so how can I be blamed? How can I, um, it, the, the excuse is just sort of implicit in that. And if you think about that quote for a moment, it's a, it's a bit of a tautology, isn't it? Um, the heart wants something, and then the thing that the heart is wanting, well, that's what it wants. So you're just saying the same thing twice. It's just repeating itself. And, and, and given that, how can you argue with it? Um, what does your heart want right now? Bacon? Well, that's what it wants. What's the problem? That's just, that's just how you are, right? Um, on the other hand, the statement is really horrifying. I mean, it's, it's a horrifying statement because if the heart is merely the sum of its own desires, then to borrow a phrase from Paul, surely we are to be pitied more than all the beasts. Uh, we're to be pitied because our hearts are wicked. Uh, we heard that at the beginning of the last talk that um, from birth, our children have bent desires and from birth, we had bent desires. And if your heart is um, this prison house that you can't escape, that's a really terrifying thing, uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine. The the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Mark seven twelve. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. But instead of being horrified at the reality of what our hearts are capable of, instead of being terrified by the thought of being enslaved to a wicked heart, we find ourselves in a world that is casually acquiescing uh, to the enslavement of the desires of the fallen heart. We live in a world that says whatever your heart wants, that's just who you are and you have to be um, good with that. We live in a world increasingly given to sexual perversion, uh, divorce, adultery, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, and then all the initials uh, that we don't even know about in the LGB, wherever it, it goes. Um, all are defended along the lines of, but this is how I feel. This is just how I, this is just how I am. As if that just settles the whole question, right? Um, as if just saying, well, but this is how I, I feel. And then nobody's supposed to be able to argue with that. Instead of being horrified by these desires and crying out for deliverance, our world is increasingly shrugging its shoulders and giving in to them. And it it becomes a viable excuse. Uh, I don't love my wife anymore. Uh, I suddenly fell in love with my secretary. I suddenly found out that I had a desire for young boys. Well, the heart wants what the heart wants. So that's who you are. That's, That's where you go. Um, We're like the four-year-old child who, uh, this is the Walmart child that was just being referred to, right? That that seems to uh, think that to say, but I want that, is an incontrovertible argument for why it must be so, right? Uh, But I want that, there we go, that settles it, because the heart wants what the heart wants. He thinks that the fact that he has this desire uh, means that instantly all of creation must hop to and fulfill his desire because I want it. Your son wants the dump dump truck that another kid is playing with and throws a temper tantrum because he believes it needs to be his. Uh, Growing up, a friend's mom used to say, if you said, but I want that, uh, her answer was, well, want in one hand and spit in the other and see which one fills up first. Um, (laughs) It's great. great. The the 80s had some great parenting, I think. (laughs) But it's it's no longer how the world responds. we're, we're now at this strange point in our culture where someone can feel, feel like a different gender or even, um, in a random instances, a different race, and, someone, um, and somehow that feeling is supposed to be respected as an ontological reality, right? This is now what you are because this was how you felt. Now we should not act like this is um, some sort of sudden shift ushered in uh, by you know the Obama administration or, or now Biden. For over 40 years America has held that if a woman does not feel like being a mother then she may execute the baby whose life may have confined her desires within the restrictive realities of biology. Okay I don't want to be pregnant. Sure, this pregnancy is the natural and predictable result of the sexual relationship that was going on beforehand, but I don't care because I don't want a baby right now. I don't want to suddenly have my life upended uh, by being given the responsibilities of being a mom. I don't want to lose my education, my career, my current lifestyle. I don't want that. So the baby has to go. Um, It's really telling, if you think about it, that of all the different slogans that could have been used to brand the pro-abortion movement, that the phrase that stuck was pro-choice. Uh, A woman's right to choose it's it's foundational to their faith that the world must conform to their wants to their desires Um, so you need to see that this is something that's very pointed that is going on and it's something that I think is also intensifying it's pointed and it's intensifying pointed in that um, it's it's weird how it's not any old desires that that have this kind of power it 's particularly our sinful desires, our sinful desires are the ones that, that have this kind of de- defining element in our life. So what, what I mean by that is um, if uh, if a, a, um, a man a, a transvestite man who 's uh, attending college wants to shower in the, in the girls locker room with the girls. You could have one guy who wants to shower with the girls. You could have 800 girls who do not want to shower with that man. That one man's desire, that's the one that rules, right? That's the one that defines what's going to happen. So it's 800 to one, but the more perverse desire always is the one that has to be uh, realized. It's the one that has to be actualized. Um, There's a deep need to say that our sinful desires are the ones that define us and cannot be escaped. There's no door out of your, the prison of your sinful desires. And it's intensifying, too. The, the sinful desires of the unregenerate heart are now considered so fundamental to a person's identity, um, challenging these desires is considered hateful. Um, You know, probably the American Psychiatric Association condemns what's called uh, conversion therapy. Uh, This idea that you could um, help somebody who is struggling with homosexual desire to actually mortify that and and live a faithful life. That's called conversion therapy. Uh, It's condemned and multiple states have made conversion therapy uh, for minors illegal. It's not just that you must accept that some people want twisted things. There's now an obligation to, to not just except that the desire is there, but there's an actual obligation to act on the desire. So, for instance, a man, a man with same-sex attraction who doesn't act on it is betraying himself. He, he, he is not living his authentic life, and he is betraying himself. To give in to the temptation is now an act of courage. To put that sin to death and to live faithfully before Christ would be to fail. Uh, uh, that, that would be a failure. To have the abortion as an act of courage to have the baby and stay home to be a mother to that baby is to fail. Um, after all, if you are the sum total of your desires, then to deny the desires is to deny yourself. You need to act on them. Um, so I, I, I could uh, imagine a catechism that could be uh, written for our current cultural moment. Um, and, and these would be the important elements to it. Your sinful desires define the authentic you. That's, that's who you really are. Your sinful desires cannot be changed, even if the world, whole world must change to accommodate them. They do not change. Acting on these sinful desires is courageous and noble. And to not act on these desires is to betray your true self. Um, that means that self-expression is a virtue that makes self-control a vice. Okay, that, that is a vice to actually control uh, yourself. And, and once you have those sort of points to the catechism and, and you watch um, uh, on any given uh, evening, TV, movies, music, all are driving home the main points to this catechism again and again and again. Um, our nightly news uh, media has a, a ritual of naming and shaming the offenders against this catechism and rewarding the faithful. So first, we need to notice that this catechism is carefully aimed at undermining the gospel. And there's some really interesting ways in which you can see this is very um, crafted to undermine uh, the message of the gospel. The world wants you to say that your identity is all wrapped up with your sinful desires and that you will grow in authenticity as you give yourself to them. You'll become a more complete version of you. Uh, but Christ says, Luke 9, 24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do see how those are two very um, diametrically opposed messages? All right, your perverse desires, that's you. You must embrace it to be the authentic you. And then Christ says, the authentic you needs to die. <laughs> die, lose your life, let it go and let it die. Christ says come and die with me lose your life let go of your sinful desires join me on the cross and die with me and find a far greater fulfillment than what you in your sins can possibly fathom I mean, this is this is the the great beauty of uh, Paul's boast in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, The gospel runs completely counter to the world's catechism. And it's a, a completely different way of thinking. So we need to remind ourselves daily of the truth of the gospel. And secondly, uh, we need to learn to live this truth out. The world says that we're defined by our sinful desires, but scripture says those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Galatians 5.24. So this is the great witness that we have in this world. Uh, We proclaim and live out the truth that Christ Jesus died and rose again to free us from our sinful desires. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, despite being born-again Christians, we feel like the world has a point. (laughs) There's a really strong point that is made here. We still find ourselves, despite being born-again Christians, faithful Christians, living in a faithful covenant community, we still find ourselves inside the prison house of our own desires. Paul describes this battle uh, that we fight, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. He says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So um, despite being freed in Christ, we find that we still wrestle with these sinful temptations. So then, our witness to this world is not the witness of an otherworldly existence where we hover two feet off the ground. Our, our witness is that of men and women who remain in the flesh, but who daily get the victory over the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, earlier I, I quoted Jesus by saying uh, that, where he's saying that we should find our, our lives by losing them. But but hear this quote again with just a little more context. Uh, again, this is Luke 9, 23 and 24. Then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, Christ makes it clear that this is a daily discipline. This is something that every day we have to give ourselves to. Um, and I'm convinced that I think that, that this really um, is most profoundly lived out in your prayer life, okay? And and really, this is all about the importance of having, um, inculcating the habit of a faithful prayer life, which I think is foundational to everything, every project that we're describing here. Um, I've argued uh, that the world has based its assault on the church by by saying that we are prisoners to our sinful desires. But I want to argue also that prayer is one of God's greatest means of converting your sinful desires into godly desires. Um, prayer frees us from what the world claims contains us. And I think it's really important to see this because um, there is a when, when the world is describing your, um, how your desires contain you, they're describing your identity, frequently it can feel like there's a very profound point here because when we are controlled, when we're um, captivated by a sinful desire, it's very difficult to figure out how we get out of it. And I want to argue that prayer is our way out of it. So if we're to have the kind of cultural impact that I described last night, uh, we have to be people who are dominated by a a prayer life. And I think that this is particularly important uh, for men um, because um, men, um, God puts um, ambition, this kind of um, hunger and desire To to conquest, Um, he puts that deep in the heart of men. Men are are driven by desire, Um, and it's really when you're young, it's really really useful. Like you you have all of these things that you have this um, intense craving for, and it drives you from you know high school sports to you know I see this in college where it's like the guys are utterly passive for everything until like about halfway through their senior year they see the girl they want and then all of a sudden they just realize what it means to be a man and then they start like really kicking butt in their all their schoolwork and everything because they know what they want to be and then it turns into a career and it turns into an ambition for a down payment for a house and all these different things that they want to achieve God puts ambition in the hearts of men, and it's a very healthy and helpful engine to drive them. Sometimes it can be a real pain, I think, for a wife somehow to be next to a guy who's just like really, really driven. Um, But it's also a huge blessing. But as you age, your desire can get you into really deep trouble. Uh, Your desires start to pull you off into bad directions. I always use the example of like, um, if you're sighting in a rifle, I just think it's so strange how, like, you can be, you know, aiming at a target a couple hundred yards uh, downrange, and you're you're trying you're trying to get your sight on, and you're making the most the slightest little change in in your in your um, sight. But downrange, this can take you off um, completely off the paper, right? It, it moves you in 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 far directions downrange because what happens is, as the bullet travels the length of that barrel rifle again and again and again, that slight that slightest little fraction of an inch of variation is multiplied, and downrange it has a huge consequence in pulling you off target, and so. Early on, you can have your desires a little bit twisted, and it doesn't show. But over a long period of time, the twisting in your desire can start to take you very far off target. And so you want to spend some time thinking about at the the foundation, what does it look like to have your desires oriented um, in a healthy spiritual way? I think this is kind of the essence of the the midlife crisis for men um, you 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 have this this strong ambition that early on it's it's like this great engine that drives you but then there's a point at which you start to realize you're getting pulled way off target because your ambition was set a little bit off. And then everything starts to fall apart with guys they're in their 40s and 50s because what they were wanting was something perverse. And it's something that God wasn't going to give them. And then they get all kinds of disillusion. Your desire being off in quiet ways over a long time can set you up for real heartache later on. Now, um, conf- consider a few passages that describe what the life of desire for a Christian is supposed to be like. Okay, and this is a little bit shocking when you start to actually look at what Scripture describes here. Um, Psalm one forty five, verse nineteen: He will fulfill the desires of those who fear Him. He will fulfill the desires of those who fill Him or who fear Him. So, are you a Christian? Do you fear the Lord? If so, then Scripture says your life should be one where God is giving you what you desire. Um, a lot of times, I think that we have a um, we we have kind of like an ascetic approach to uh, to the Christian life where. Where the Christian life means just embracing uh, and loving all the hard and difficult things. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a little kid and you've got your peanut butter j- jelly sandwich and everybody has different strategies of dealing with the crust, you know, because. The, the center is the good part and the crust is the no fun part. And so everybody, like some people just like rip it off, don't do it. Um, but then there's some people it's like, no, you've got to do the hard thing first. They eat the crust all the way around. And, and then, but I think you start to think about God where it's like being a Christian is just all crust all the time. Like all we do, is the hard things, that God just wants, like, if anything, if, if ever the choice is before you, like, this would be fun, this would be miserable, God probably wants me to do that. Um, (laughs) That's how we tend to think about, about God. Um, But he says here, if he will fulfill the desires of those who fear him, the Christian faith is intended to take you to a place where what you desire is what God is giving you. Not only that, it's what, it's, we're told that it is God's glory to give you what you desire. John uh, 14, verses 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it, right? He's he's saying here that that the, the Father wants to give to you what you ask for and that the Father, in that moment where you're asking for something, um, and he is giving you the thing that you asked for, the father, that is the, th- that is the moment that the father is glorified. And, and it's funny because it, actually if you think about this as a parent, you know that this is true. Your kids don't think it's true, but you know it's true that when, when you are able to, um, to give your, your children something that they, that they desperately wanted, you feel the thrill of that. I mean, it, it's the strangest thing when um, Christmas morning flipped. Where, where Christmas morning becomes this like great thrill in giving your kids the presents that they wanted. And it's the strangest thing, because as a kid I could never imagine like that being the fun part. But but as a dad, you, you know that it's true, and we're told here that God is glorified in that moment when his children are asking for the thing that they want, and he is saying yes, not no. He is saying yes, not more crust, right? He's giving you what you desire. John fifteen seven and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. In both of these passages, we see that not only is the Father willing to answer our prayers, but he is glorified in doing so. Now, the, the, the problem is when you, I start saying that, then it starts to sound like, okay... This it sounds dangerously like one of those name-it-and-claim-it uh, kinds of exposition of Scripture. And so the next thing that happens is I'm supposed to promise you that if you uh, write a check to Trinity Church, uh, that God will make you a millionaire, right? Okay. You you have a need, you've got to plant a seed, and God will bless that. Um, there are some important qualifications that need to be made here, but the... Um, Let's not make the qualifications without first seeing what the text clearly says. Because a lot of times we rush to the qualifications and we spend all the time on the qualifications so that the text no longer says what the text actually says. But we need to see what the text clearly says. It says here is that, that God is glorified by us asking for things from him and him granting those requests our desires being what he wants to give us. Um, whatever you ask, he says, if you ask anything, he says, ask what you desire. Those are really strong promises. First um, John, John five fourteen through 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So there's a, there's a qualification here. Uh, the Father hears us if we ask according to his will. So the promise is not a blank check. God is not our genie in a bottle. Uh, the promise is contingent on our being submission in submission to his will. But but listen to the verse again. Um, the uh, Let me just read it one more time. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him the promise here is a promise of confidence this is the confidence that we have in him it's a promise of confidence promised for whatever we ask a promise that will that we will be able to know that we are going to receive what we have asked for that we will live in this place where we have assurance and certainty of what we will be receiving now Christians tend to read this verse like they found um, the fine print. You know, you you have the promises of. Whatever you ask, he's going to give it. And then right off, we've got to find, where's the fine print that takes that away, right? It's like the, the letter you get that you've won something, you know that there's fine print somewhere in there that takes it away such that you don't even bother to look for the fine print because you know you know it's there. And I think we have a tendency to hit verses like this and just assume there's other things that cancel that out in a little bit. So don't get your hopes up, right? You don't, don't think too much about it. Now, it's true that this verse does not teach that God is bound to fulfill whatever sinful desire I might have. Um, So the qualification is valid. I don't get to just sit and say, um, I want all these different things that I lust for and I know that God has to give them to me. But it's also true that this verse does not teach that God's will is going to unfold with complete disregard for my desires, okay? Okay. That, that God's will and my desires are actually deeply connected. Now, here's where we get messed up, and I think this is the, the difficult part. If God promises that he will give us what we want, we need to remember that there's two variables here, and, and this is the part where I think we're lost. There's the fulfillment of the desire, him giving, granting that desire. Then there's the desire itself, that, the, the birthing of that desire that wants that object. In other words, in every prayer, there are two things at stake. There is the thing that is being asked for, and second, the actual desire for that thing being asked for. And we tend to only see the first, Um, but we what we don't realize is that in prayer, our want, our desire, that desire itself, is on the table when we come before God. Your heart is supposed to be on the table when you come to God in prayer. I think. if you ever remember, like you, I can think of back in Sunday school when we would be taught about spiritual warfare, and when you'd always, you'd always have like all of these um, um, uh, um, equi- equivalencies of, of some sort, where it's like um, when you're out with gospel tracts sharing the gospel, that's like hand-to-hand combat, but then when you are praying for somebody, that's like artillery. Because here you're like, you're right in the heart of the fight, but here you're like at a safe distance. And that's the virtue of artillery is that you're at this distance, but you're still lobbing shells uh, onto the enemy. And we tend to think of prayer in that way. Prayer is when you're kind of like, you're at a safe distance. You're not at stake, but you're, you're lobbing things over there where the stuff is actually happening. But the, that image, I think, really misses what prayer is. I want to argue that prayer is the moment where you're, um, you're in the thick of it. You're being messed with uh, in prayer. You are at stake when you're in prayer. Um, the best example um, that, I can, um, that I can give of this is the example that um, Jesus gave to us with his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Matthew twenty six thirty nine. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's two really important elements uh, to this. First, I think it's interesting that he, it's important that he actually prayed the prayer. This is a moment where, where Jesus is overwhelmed with the grief of what is about to come. And he, he knows what is coming. And so he takes that whole night to just spend it in uh, prayer before the Father. And he takes the thing that he felt most powerfully and he puts it up on the altar for the Father. Like, and, and I think it's really striking where he says, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So I, I think it's really striking to see he doesn't want to die. <laughs> he, he, he does not want to do the cross. And, he's, and he actually prays, could we come up with a different plan? Um, but then at the same time, he, he, he takes this thing that he feels really, really strongly. And, and a lot, oftentimes, you know, when you have something, you feel really strongly, you protect it. You hold it inside because you don't want people to mess with it. But he takes that and then he says, and now I'm taking that desire that I feel really strongly and I'm putting it on the altar. And now do with it what you want. You, you can, you can um, change this however you want. So he, he actually prayed the prayer. He took it to the Father. He didn't sit and, and say, maybe I should ask for this, but maybe I shouldn't. Or what if the Father says no? He wasn't scared to take the thing that weighed most heavily on his heart and place it before the Father. Then second, with the next breath, he said, if it is your will... And he let go of it. He puts it on the altar, and he lets go of it, and he says, now, Father, you do with that what you will. He said it in the Father's hands and said to the Father, this is now yours to deal with as you please. Um, and I think it's just really, really hard to put those things together. Um, you, when you... Um, I know that like many times when there's something like I feel really, really strongly about and you think, well, if you feel really strongly about it, you should be praying about it. But I know that if I pray about it, that means I have to sit on the altar and let go and see what God will do with it. And I don't want to know. I, I, I don't, I, I know I won't pray about it because I feel strongly about it because that means I would have to like let God make a decision here and frequently I don't want to allow that to happen. But it's amazing how Jesus does that. He sets on the altar and he says, now you, Father, you do with this what you want. He, he puts two things together that are to my, our minds opposites. The temptation is to fudge on one of those two. Uh, when you put them both together, you put all your heart into something you want, and then you offer it up to be completely obliterated, right? You're, you're, you're offering it up where it's like you're climbing on to the altar and setting it there for God to, to do with it what, what he would want. And I think that it's very difficult to bring those two things together, um, to, to put it on the altar and say, God, you do with this what you want. Um, and then what's really interesting is then you read a little bit further down, you read a little bit further down, Matthew twenty six forty two. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed saying, oh my father, if, the, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So it's interesting in that little bit. He, you can you can sense a change in his disposition. The first one is, "Please, can we come up with a different plan?" Then he sets on the altar, and then the second time he comes up and he prays, "Your will be done." He doesn't ask anymore for it to not happen. He says, "Just I'm I'm ready to do what you, Father, have determined." And he you can see his desire changed in that prayer where he put his desire on the altar he gave it to the father and the father shifts it and the father helps him to want what the father's will is and i think i think that this is uh, the the two pieces that are really difficult to bring together at this moment is first of all first of all taking taking something that we want really badly and, and setting it out there. I think um, particularly men, we we tend to stifle our ambitions. We tend to hold them back and hold them inside, purely because if you really, if you really take what you want and, and identify it and lift it up, we're scared of the disappointment, right? Um, I think that you'll see like... Um, if you watch, say, say NBA championships, um, or not? No, let's go. Let's go basketball uh, um, or college ball. So, if you go like um, the college uh, championship game, at the end of the championship game, and you watch one team defeated, and and you can see um, just how painful and how crushed they are. You'll see guys, you know, walking off the basketball court crying. Where these are these are. Grown men who have given themselves to intense physical pain for a lifetime to get to this moment without breaking, but then the disappointment of having their desire not fulfilled is crushing and you and you see that and and because we see that a lot of times we fear our own desires so we 'll hold back we we'll, we'll, um, and guys will start to like I think this is where guys can like move from an active life of sports and whatnot to just a life of video games because it's so so much easier to relieve your need for adrenaline in a world where there's no real actual disappointment Um, and so we sort of divert all of our ambitions and you'll see lots of guys who have strong ambitions in them but then they're constantly sort of sublimating with these weird excuses um, so that they don't have to actually compete because they're they're scared of the competition and so it's really difficult to actually like I identify in yourself, this is the thing I want. I really badly want it. And I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I badly want it. And not only that, here it is. And I'm going to take my hands off it and willingly embrace what God determines with this. Willingly embrace His will. Those two things together, to, to put it on the altar and then to take your hands off of it, that's a really, really rare and crazy thing to be able to do. But I think that that's what prayer is, uh, is um, meant for, for us. Our men should be identified by that kind of prayer life, where they're identifying what they want, but then handing it uh, to the Father and letting Him deal with it. God does not just answer our prayers. He shapes them. God does not just give us what we want. He slowly and mercifully grows our wants into maturity. So what does it mean then to pray? When you're praying, I think of it as wanting in front of God. And that's why I titled the talk God Lust. Because I think men, um, you're particularly identified by your desires and particularly like things like lust can come into your life. And it can feel like when lust gets a hold of someone, you can feel like you're just a little rag doll in the hands of this huge gorilla, you know, just beating it around. Because you can feel like you're at its mercy. Because desire can be so strong. But I want to argue that prayer is like, basically, it's just you wanting in front of God. You you take what you want. You take, like, what is the thing in your heart that is so powerful, that is so controlling? You take that, and you say, okay, here it is. Now, go through that desire, but, but do it as a prayer. Go through that desire to God and say, in Jesus' name, amen walk through that desire. Whatever it is that you want, you walk through it in front of God. But what's crazy is you can't take like a perverse sexual lust and, and bring it in front of the Father and walk through it without you being changed, and without that desire being changed, because what turns into what was a lustful fantasy becomes a, con- a prayer of confession. It, it, God, If you bring it before God and actually set it before him, he changes the desire. He, um, he cleans it all up. He sorts it all out. He rearranges your heart so that your heart is oriented in the direction that you want to go. And what you start to find out is this thing that, that the world is telling you is a prison. You cannot get out of it. Your desires, your, your heart is this prison that you cannot get out of. You take it in prayer, you put it in front of God, and then all the doors to the prison open up. And you, and you walk out and you find your heart and you find your desires all sorted and arranged in this faithful way. So what does it mean to pray you're just wanting in front of God. It's, yeah, prayer is God lust. It's, it's you taking lust and giving it to God and having him rearrange it. Um, but it's not just that. In prayer, you hand your wants over to God. It's a part of that daily taking up of your cross that, that we read about early. You take up your cross daily. Every day you're walking through this. Dying to yourself and handing all things to God. And what you find is that as you do this, you don't stop wanting. Um, in fact, I think your desires get stronger. But, but what happens is your desires themselves become shaped by God to be his desires, to be the things that he wanted you to want. And so what you find is that you go back to those verses that were scared, like, okay, is this like some sort of um, health and wealth, uh, name it and claim it kind of theology, where because you have all these passages that flat out say, you're supposed to ask for things and be confident that whatever you want, God is going to give it to you. You're supposed to, you're supposed to think that according to these verses. And, and suddenly when you start to look at it this way, you realize, actually, that's true. That is what God wants for you, but we get there by this surprising, um, in this surprising way because it 's like if I, um, if you can imagine me standing here and let 's say i 've got a rope and I start pulling on the rope all right and I, and I pull all the way to the other end of the rope, and we get to the other end of the rope okay now um imagine now, let's say the camera goes way back, and you see that I'm actually standing in a canoe (laughs) with this long rope, and that rope is tied to a huge boulder on the shore. And now you see me pulling on that rope. Okay, in the first picture, you thought that in order for me to get to the end of the rope, that the end of the rope was coming to me. But, But when the camera comes back, what you see is the action is exactly the same. I'm doing the same thing but it's not the um, it's not the end of the rope coming to me. I'm being pulled to the other. I'm being pulled to the rock, right? I, I'm being pulled in that direction, and so it, it's the same thing with the prayer. We we hear, okay, you pray and God will give you whatever you want, and we think that that means that that God has to whatever I pray, God has to put on the end of the rope and it comes to me when I pull. But what we don't realize is what it means is when I pray, I'm being pulled to him so that whatever I want is what he's going to give. But it's my desire that changed. We think, we think that somehow my desire is like this fixed thing. We think it's the prison house that cannot be remade, that cannot be, you cannot be freed from. I'm saying in prayer, the prison doors open and we come to him. Our desires become his desires. So in uh, Philippians uh, 2, 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Read it again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is teaching us patiently, mercifully, graciously how to want, uh, um, how to want what he wants. He puts to death our old desires and gives us new desires. He is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. My will is being changed to his good pleasure as God is working in me. As King David tells us in Psalm 37:4, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I think this is the this is the verse that actually set me off on this whole kind of rabbit trail of trying to figure out how how does this work? It, it, he says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I love the idea of being at a place where the desires of my heart are the, are the very things that God most wants to give me. All right, How do I get to the place where the desires of my heart are the things that God wants to make happen in this world? Well, he says, delight yourself in the Lord. I I learn how to delight in the Lord, and suddenly my life is not a life of frustration. It's not a life of disappointment. It's not a life of everything seems to like, I want that, but then it doesn't work out, and this is another disappointment, this is another failure. When I delight myself in the Lord, I find that what I want is what He wants to give to me. And, And these two things are brought together. So the heart wants what the heart wants until, that is, it has been crucified with Christ and risen again to want what God wants. And I think that this is such a really important thing for our current cultural moment. Um, Because right now, our children are being told that their, what is in their heart is this identity. Their, their twisted hearts, as you were just uh, told again. You know, they're they're born sinful. They have twisted desires from the beginning, and the world is sneaking in and telling them. This is your true you. This is, this is who you must be. This is what your life must be. And, and your life of fulfillment has to be the life of expressing that sinful desire as loudly as you can. We want to put a microphone to that and turn the volume all the way up to 11, right? We, we want to make that the, the sound that everybody hears. That's the, what the world is telling us. But in the gospel, we are finding that actually that's not what glory looks like. And that's really just a life of frustration. But I would say, um, all all of our um, attempts to to um, basically counter this sinful and foolish teaching, it really has to begin with us living it out as a life of prayer. It really has to be us living it out as a life of prayer, and in particular, um, I really appreciate the comments about, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the way. A family needs to be structured and the, and, the, and the structure of the family actually having real impact on the kids and their understanding of the way the world works. I would really argue for that to be oriented rightly, it really needs to begin with that being someone who leads in prayer. It, with with your, your own personal life being um, being characterized by that, and that your your children seeing that this is just what the world is supposed to be like, and this is what being a man looks like. As you're teaching your children what, how ambition works, how, what it looks like to set goals, um, to, to have um, things that you're going to sorry, (laughs) things that you're going to try to achieve and you're starting little and working your way up um, and then and setting these these big hairy ambitious goals and then and then actually like throwing yourself at it in a way that is spiritually healthy. That happens when you can all do it inside this framework of prayer. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So the heart wants what the heart wants until it has been crucified with Christ and risen again to want what God wants. Prayer, I believe, is God's means of showing to us and to the watching world that our desires are not our prison house. Let me pray. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for your gifts to us and pray that you would be glorified in the way we live out uh, this faithful life. I pray in particular that we would have our eyes opened to understand what it looks like to give our desires to you and that we would really truly feel uh, the powerful experience of your Holy Spirit causing this to work in our life that our, where our desires are reshaped by your desires. And praise things in your Son's name. Amen.